together, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. We are working our way through, as a church, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. These words that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, 20 centuries ago, it's a long time, are just as relevant today as they were then. Paul wrote to a church that lived in a culture, made it difficult to live righteously. Paul wrote to a people that needed to be reminded of all the privileges that had been granted to them through Christ and His cosmic redemption. They needed to have the implications of this gospel teased out for them so that they would make choices, decisions that would please their Creator, that would honor their sacrificial Savior, that would have an impact on the community and culture around them, and that would bring them joy. At all times and all places, we are making worship decisions. We are always worshiping something. And one of the reasons that the Lord Jesus has given us His Word and left it for us, has preserved it for us, and has purposed that we gather together corporately is so that we will hear. And as I often remind you here, there are two basic things that should happen every time we gather together as the people of God. First, we should be reminded that we have been granted great and precious privileges, things that we did not earn, things that we do not deserve. Namely, and most specifically, that God the Father has rescued fallen, deliberate rebels by sacrificing His own Son. Therefore, we need not face the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. That is what we have earned. But instead, we get what Christ has earned. Christ has earned eternal glory and offers to His people as the Savior of the world, His grace. So when we come to Him in faith and repentance, He got what we deserved, our punishment. But we get His righteousness. And so we are reminded of this, if we are being careful every time we gather together, that we are the people of God because of Christ. This is the story of the Bible. We'll see more about that this week and next, the story of the Bible, God's redemption of His people in Christ. Every story is an echo of the bigger story. Every word drips with grace. But not only when we gather together should we be reminded of the grace that is ours in Christ, but we should be challenged that in light of such grace we should walk in keeping with who He has called us to be and enabled us to be, as we will see together today. So I want to read for us Ephesians chapter 5. I will read all the way down through verse 33, though we will not cover verses 31 to 33 until next week because I want to do good justice to this entire passage. So our focus will be in chapters 5, verses 25 through 30, though I will read this entire section. This is the word of the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless to us the reading of his word. We spent our time together in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24 last week, where we saw that wives are to respect and submit to their husbands in light of Jesus' gracious headship modeled after the willing submission of the church to her Lord. As we said last week, this is countercultural. At first blush, at first glance, that can seem relatively tasteless, certainly hard, but this was the original design, that loving, gracious men that we will talk about today would lead their wives, and wives would submit to them in respect, and they would walk together in harmony, glorifying their Creator and finding great joy in Him. But as we learned, it didn't stay that way because sin entered the world. It affected them not just vertically in their relationship with the Creator, but, but horizontally with one another. And as we have talked about often here, the axis, the A-X-I-S of relationships showed up in the fall. The vertical relationship was broken, and it is no mistake and no surprise that the horizontal one would be broken as well. But, but there was another axis, another cross, if you will, a cross shape that would come that would restore both that we restore us to God and therefore to, to one another. It is because of the cross of Jesus now that wives can be restored to the original design, can fight the sin and tendency that dwells within them to usurp their husbands and to establish their own authority and headship. Paul calls them to live according to the original design. So we could say this is about re-creation. In the initial creation where God called everything good, it was normal. It was expected that men would love their wives and wives would respond in humble submission with joy. Sin brought a kind of decreation where both became difficult. Husbands ceased loving their wives as they should. Instead, they became selfish and often used their authority harshly. In response, wives wanted to lead. Wives wanted to strike back. Wives wanted to often self-protect. And so things went off the rails. We see that still in our culture, do we not? where the very fabric of this most intimate of relationships seems very brittle and often fragile. 
and we feel it in our own hearts, if we're being honest. It is difficult for wives to submit to husbands. It is difficult for husbands to to love their wives, but because the axis of the vertical and the horizontal has been recreated, if you will, this can be once again lived out. And not just lived out, it, it can be enjoyed. And when put on display, it is beautiful and restorative and is used by Jesus, the one who hung upon the cross and was raised from the dead to bring recreation, not just individually or even corporately within our church family, but beyond the proverbial walls of this church that others might see and be intrigued and perhaps recreated themselves. And so this is no small deal. And though we will merely hint at that this week and get into it more fully next week, the relationship of marriage, the most intimate of relationships, and parenthetically I will say, it should be of no great surprise to us that the relationship that perhaps can bring us the most joy and the most intimacy can also bring us the greatest pain. That should not shock us. Rich Mullins, one of my favorite Christian artists who died tragically many years ago in a song called We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are, said that our hells and our heavens live few inches apart. And thus it is so in marriage. The relationship that is the most intimate and can bring us the most joy can also bring us the greatest pain. Some of you have experienced that. My heart hurts for you. But because there is the possibility, because there is the hope of of recreation, because there is the prospect of joy, not perfect joy this side of eternity, but but joy nonetheless on balance, that can be our trajectory because of the recreation of Jesus, because of the gospel. This does not have to go off the rails. This, This can be redeemed. Marriage can be reclaimed. The most intimate of relationships, though we will at times be hurt, deeply, and though scar tissue may remain and remind us of the the hurt of the past, the echoes of the fall, still on balance for God's people, the marriage relationship may be restored and enjoyed. And so we take our time to explore how that is so. So as we talked about last week, wives, you can submit to your husband's as the church submits to Christ, because Jesus is the head. Jesus is the one who gives hope. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22-33, at first glance, might seem very condemning. For in them, as you see yourself, you may say to yourself, I don't do these things, and I don't like to be told that I'm failing. I'd I'd rather just not listen. But if if you're careful to see, 
this section of Scripture, as we've talked about already, drips with grace because Jesus is everywhere in it. You can't take a bite of this recipe and not taste some grace. This recipe is, is heavily laden, is heavily dosed with grace. Jesus is everywhere in this passage. And so, therefore, we are called to transformation, both wives and husbands, but not without help and not without hope. This is a unique section within Ephesians for it helps unite Paul's two purposes. And as I've already said greatly, the two purposes of any sermon or Bible study And that is that Jesus has granted Himself to us and restored us to God and then calls us to transformed living. But but this passage puts them together. We are called to transformation, but, but only because Jesus is our hope. So wives, I want to remind you that the submission to which you are called is not one of of tasteless living, but one of joy. And you are enabled by Jesus who is transforming you and Husbands, as we will talk together over the next couple of weeks, you are not without hope. For Jesus is the one who transforms, and Jesus is the one who grants us His sustaining grace. So, let's explore these verses together today. First, in verse 25, Husbands, we are to love our wives. First, as we will see in verses 25 through 27, We are to love them as a reflection of the gracious, sacrificial love of Jesus for His people, the church. Let's park on that first thought for just a moment that we see at the beginning of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Why were wives told to submit to their husbands? Well, it's because their tendency would often be not to, either because they wanted their own leadership and authority, or perhaps because very often, and sadly, this is still true today, husbands lead poorly, and therefore, out of fear and frustration, wives can often assume the vacuum of leadership that the husbands leave. Why are husbands called to love their wives? Well, just like the wives who are to live counter to their tendencies and to trust Jesus, Husbands, often our tendency is the opposite, to not love like we should. Now, if you're savvy as you're thinking through this passage, you might say to yourself, are wives not to love their husbands? Well, of course they are. But the reason that they are called to submission here is because not only was this the original design that even sin was not to undo, but because it was their tendency not to. Is there ever a sense in which husbands can in some way submit to their wives? Now, not in leadership, not in authority, but, but deferring to them? Well, of course. It makes sense. That helps make sense of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, where in some way we're to all submit to one another. The reason that husbands are called to love their wives here is because just like the wives who struggled with their tendencies, so too do we. We struggle with our tendency not to love. We struggle with our tendency to use our God-given authority, our God-given headship to be bullies, to excuse our harshness, our shortness, our frustration, 
But instead, Paul says, that can't be the way that you live with these precious women that God has given to you as your intimate and special love. No, instead we must recognize our tendency toward harshness, toward misusing our authority and headship, and instead, just as Jesus loved the church, to love our wives sacrificially. So it's a simple command, at least in notion. That is to say, it's not rocket science. We understand at least basically what it means to love a wife. This is not that complex, but it is difficult, right? There's a, diff- there's a difference between complexity and difficulty. Paul is not calling these husbands to, to a complex notion, but he is calling them to a life of laying their lives down. Paul is calling them to die to themselves. And at first glance, at first thought, at first impression, that might seem relatively tasteless, if not outright something we just don't want. But in dying, life comes. In sacrificing, joy comes. I've already said to you that truly the story of the Bible is that God has redeemed His people in Christ and all those who will receive Him by faith will be restored, will be recreated, will be brought back into fellowship with God and will live eternally with Him. What is that story if it is not a story of sacrifice? If it is not a story of death, that life can only come through death, that is the greatest story ever told. It shows up in the best books, in the best movies. My favorite book as a kid was Where the Red Fern Grows. Anybody read this as a child? My boys have begun reading this book, and so the basic gist of the story is you've got this kind of country boy, I think in Arkansas, and he's infatuated with coon hunting kind of generational thing in his family. They, so they go hunt raccoons, and then they get their pelts, and they can sell them. And so this boy doesn't have a lot of money. His family doesn't have a lot of money. But through a series of, of events, he's able to raise enough money, and he buys these two little coonhound puppies. And then he trains them, you know, and teaches them how to, to go tree a coon. So they would chase them, and then raccoons would run up the tree. And then at first, this boy would chop down the tree, and then they would kill the raccoon. Eventually, he got a a little rifle, I think, and they could shoot him, and it made it a lot easier. Well, eventually, after he wins this uh, championship coon hunting uh, tournament, he's out hunting one day, casually, I think, near his home, and a mountain lion comes along, and um, one of the dogs, I think it was the female dog, Little Ann, jumps in front of the mountain lion, the cougar, and saves the boy's life. And you know the cougar either runs away or gets killed. I can't remember. And uh, at the end of the story, old Dan, the, the the male dog, would lay at the grave of the female dog because he was mourning her death. And then he eventually died too. And the boy came of age through this, but he learned to love an animal. But he learned to love nonetheless. But but sacrifice, right? He was a dog, but the dog sacrificed herself for the life of the boy. This happens in 
all of our greatest stories. Sacrifice lies at the heart of it. There, there's something within us that, that responds to that. The echoes of the divine story come out in our human stories. And so I want to say to you husbands that, that yes, this is a call to death. It's a, it's a call to lay your life down sacrificially, but, but in doing so, you will receive joy. So we are to love our wives as a reflection of the gracious, sacrificial love of Jesus for his people, the church. Let's explore what that means. Christ loved the church, the end of verse 25, and gave himself up for her. This speaks to sovereign action. It speaks to Jesus' intentional purpose. This was not some sort of like celestial cosmic uh, matchmaker kind of thing where there was a bride out there somewhere who was, who was seeking to be redeemed and seeking the perfect mate. And then she kind of met the celestial mate from heaven halfway and, and they had a lot of things in common and, and she wooed him and he wooed her a bit and then eventually they, they dated for a while metaphorically and then they came together and had a relationship. That, that is not what happened in the story of redemption. We see this with Adam and Eve as we discussed briefly last week. When Adam and Eve fall into sin, what does God do? He comes to them. Not just speaking words of cursing, but words of promise. The first things that come out of the mouth of God to these fallen people is the promise of a Redeemer. But whose redemption would come through his own death. Yes, he would crush the head of the serpent, but it would cost him his own life. The first couple were promised that one would come who would give himself up for them. God brought Israel to himself. Let's turn together, if you don't mind, to Ezekiel chapter 16. Just like Adam and Eve, who hid from God and fell from grace and didn't want him, Israel was sinful. Israel did not want God. Israel was left to herself and was content in it. This is, I would say, one of the most important and, and uh, perhaps obscure chapters in all of the Bible. It can be a little bit difficult to read because of some of the imagery, but through the, the starkness of the imagery, we, we learn much. So let's take some time to read an extended portion of this passage and I think it will help make sense of what we are studying together in Ephesians 5 today. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. In other words, they were pagans. And they were comfortable in it. And as for your birth, verse 4, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. This was her condition, lost and without hope. When I passed by, this is God, when I passed by you, 
saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. So God made Israel his child. But the metaphor changes here. And this is not inappropriate, it's just a metaphor. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. So now he makes her his bride. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. But verse 15, after having been made a daughter and then a bride, and again, remember, this is just a metaphor. How did Israel respond to God's pursuing her, rescuing her? Verse 15, you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore. She turned to other gods. And then, most of the rest of this chapter, verse after verse, frankly, it's kind of excruciating to read. It's like, okay, we get it, she was evil, but God pours it on, like putting a movie screen in, in front of her. Ezekiel's words expose just how sinful and treacherous Israel had been, especially in light of the grace that had been granted to her. But but then the end of the chapter, verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish before you an everlasting covenant. What's God going to do? He's going to bring her back to himself. She who was abandoned she who had no hope, he rescued her, and he made her his own. He gave her great privilege, not because she wanted him, not because she came after him, not because she was seeking the best God to serve, but out of sheer and utter sovereign grace, he made her his own. And despite this, she still ran away from him, despite all the privileges that had been granted to her. But what would be her future? Renewal. Covenant hope. And I think, in light of that, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, these metaphors, these stories, Paul was a good Israelite, they filled his head. They had captured his heart. Paul himself understood that he wasn't seeking Jesus Jesus had to sovereignly meet him on the road to Damascus when he was going to kill other followers of Jesus. But Jesus made Israel his own. Jesus made Paul his own. And Paul says to the church, Jesus gave himself up for you to make you his own. And this is why 
on balance, the wives get three verses and the husbands get nine. Jesus is the initiator of this relationship with the church. She did not, would not, and could not meet him halfway. This was not some sort of celestial e-harmony. Their profiles did not match. Jesus took what was unlovely, unbecoming, and hostile, and he made her his own. And the reason that the husbands, guys, I'm speaking to you, the reason the husbands get more instruction is because just as Jesus was the initiator of the relationship with the church, we are to be the initiator of the relationship with our wives. In other words, as I said to you last week, at least hinting at it, if you want your wife to submit to you, not just because it makes things easier, but because you are helping her follow the will of the Lord, and because your home will be more harmonious and happy, you must be the catalyst for the relationship. I used the analogy last week of machinery, gears and wheels and cogs. The machinery of marriage far too often grinds to a halt because the husband and wife create this sort of stare-down match, and no one will cross the proverbial middle line toward the other so that forgiveness can come and the machinery can work once again. But as I said to you last week, I believe that the love that the husband brings into the relationship, this prevailing atmosphere of gracious love, is the grease of the wheels of the machinery that keeps it moving. In other words, love is like a lubricant to the relationship that makes it much easier, in fact, even desirable for the woman to submit to her husband. And when the husband fails to grease the machinery with gracious, consistent love, do not be surprised when the wife usurps his authority and fails to submit, and the machinery grinds and grinds slowly and painfully to a halt. If you are in a position today where it is ground to that halt, or is grinding irritatingly, frustratingly to a halt, husbands, you must be the initiator. You must be the catalyst for change. And then once it's going, you must lubricate the machinery consistently, over and over again, so that it becomes not just periodic, not just your monthly date, not just a yearly anniversary, not just a day after work where you're feeling pretty good and you throw her a bone, but every day it must be the prevailing atmosphere of the home. And by the grace of Jesus, you must do this. In what ways did Jesus give himself up for the church? And for what purpose? Well, he came and took on flesh. He kept all the laws that, that his people should have kept and would not have kept. And suffered all the limitations of, of a fallen world. But more so, he laid his life down willingly and allowed the creatures to kill the Creator. That's how he gave himself up for her. 
And what's the purpose of this? That she might be transformed. He wants to sanctify her, to make her holy, in other words. How has he done that? By washing her with water through the word. This may be a reference to baptism, though we don't believe that baptism in any way actually washes away sin. It may be more metaphorical than that. You know, anything about the Mosaic law, whenever the priests would come and offer sacrifices, they had to go through elaborate rituals of washing. It wasn't just because they had dirt on their skin. It was to demonstrate to them that that the outward stuff, the outward filth, was paling in comparison to the inward filth. If they were to come to God, they had to be clean. But truly, only God could clean. Only, only God could wash. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to wash and, and cleanse the church through His sacrifice. And where are we headed? Well, verse 27. We are headed toward being presented to Jesus in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be eternally holy and without any blemish. So who makes us holy? Jesus makes us holy. He's the only one who can. We never would have wanted it. We never would have pursued it. We never could have achieved it. Jesus did this by sheer sovereign grace. In James chapter 1, verse 18, James says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And in verse 21 of the same chapter, James says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news or gospel that was preached to you. How does Jesus transform the church? It's through the Bible. There's no replacement for that. That is why we pay such attention to each word of the Bible. And it shouldn't just be on Sundays. It should be in our small groups. That's why we meet together during the week so that we can remind each other once again of the Word of God. That's why, as parents, we teach our children. It's why we spend time privately with God in the Word. The Word is irreplaceable and indispensable in bringing us back to life. So Jesus was the Word, and He left the Word, and as the Word is preached, people are transformed, cleansed, brought to renewal. And where are we headed? Well, Don read these verses to us earlier. Let's turn together to Revelation 19. What is the end result of, of all of this? We'll start in verse 6 of Revelation 19. Then I heard 
what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It was granted to her, it was given to her by Jesus. In verse 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. For those who have received Jesus by faith, he who took on flesh and obeyed the laws that we could not and would not keep and laid His life down for us and took the wrath of God but then was raised to new life, conquering sin and death. Those of us who have trusted that, the good news, the gospel, that's where we're headed. Each day, we are being transformed one more small degree. It is possible, truly and sadly, for us to regress from time to time. All of us have been there, perhaps some of us today, to regress, to fall back, to backslide a bit, perhaps to use an overused word. But for those who are truly united to Jesus, who gave Himself up for her, where are we headed? We're headed to total perfection, total sanctification, splendor, spotlessness, wrinklelessness, Holiness, blemishlessness, that's that's where we're going. Why? Because of the sovereign grace of Jesus. So husbands, you have to love your wife that way. Deliberately, purposefully, with an end in mind. Now, the question might arise, again, if you're being savvy and thinking, do do you sanctify your wife? And the answer is, no, you you don't sanctify her. But you can position her in such a way, through your love, reflecting the love of Jesus, that she wants to pursue that. In other words, you should be setting the pace in the home. You should be creating such a culture in your relationship with your wife that she wants Jesus more than anything else positioning her in such a way that she is beholding His face consistently, hearing His story again and again, that she knows His voice, that she knows that He is good, and that she wants to pursue Him in ways like submission to you, helping her along the way, and in more ways. So no, you can't sanctify your wife, but but you can create a culture in the home by trusting in Jesus, enabled by His Spirit, that your wife will end up there, progressively and finally, rejoicing with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the greatest marriage of all, where there'll be no more shame and no more tension and no more hiding and no more anxiety, and no more frustration over broken relationships, but conversely, 
we will all behold our Savior and those that are in Him, His people, His bride, the church, we will be able to look at each other with perfect love and we will lay our lives down for eternity for the good of one another. I look forward to that. I look forward to no more tension, no more struggle, no more disharmony. And lest we miss this, all of us who have trusted Jesus will be there together. We'll all enjoy each other, and more importantly, Him, together for forever. And shouldn't we be living that way now? Shouldn't we purpose to be together? Shouldn't we purpose to speak the words of the gospel to each other? Shouldn't we sacrifice for each other? Shouldn't we forgive each other? Shouldn't we think the best of each other? Shouldn't we forbear with one another's struggles? The distance between those of us who sin against each other pales in comparison, is infinitesimal in comparison to the chasm that existed between humanity and God. But He spanned it, He bridged it by sending His Son to bring us back to Himself. And if He has done that, and one day will restore fallen, broken sinners to Himself, and a party that He has planned, and a party that He will provide, and a party that He will ensure His own marriage supper, should we not live together with one another in harmony. So, husbands are to love their wives as a reflection of the gracious, sacrificial love of Jesus for His people, the church, displaying the beauty of the one flesh union of marriage. Let me bridge these two sections together, verses 25 through 27 with verses 28 through 30. We are to reflect the gracious, sacrificial love of Jesus for His people, the church, in order that we might display the beauty of the one flesh union of marriage. Husbands, I want to say to you that you can't just muscle this along. This is not just a romantic notion. If you were to ask most couples early on, whenever they're dating, maybe headed toward marriage, what kind, of, what kind of marriage do you want? Do you want it to be special, full of love and peace and harmony? They would say, yes. After a few years in, perhaps it's been rocky and tough. And if you could get them in a moment, perhaps, where they're not seething with anger, disappointment, and say, what is it that you wanted and, and, and what do you want? Do you, do you want to have a harmonious, special, unique relationship with your spouse say, yes, I want that. But husbands, because we are the ones who are to lubricate the machinery, to keep it moving, to create a culture of grace in the home, the only way that we can do that is if we are consistently beholding the Savior and rehearsing His good news. In other words, the only way that we can love our wives in this fashion is if we ourselves, to use a metaphor that we often use around here, if we ourselves are drinking deeply from that well. There is no way you can run the race of marriage if you are parched. 
You can't muscle it along. You can't get this by watching The Notebook, which I know guys aren't supposed to watch. You can't get this merely by going to a counselor. He gives you good techniques. You can't get this by going to a marriage seminar. The only way that you can love this way is by beholding Jesus and treasuring the gospel. Then your parched throat will be slaked, and then and then alone can you love your wife this way. So that now, verses 28 through 30, you might display the beauty of the one flesh union of marriage. In the same way, as Jesus laid his life down for the church, in other words, Paul says in verse 28, in the same way, sacrificially, husbands, you must love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, there's a metaphor here. Men take care of themselves. Now, I don't mean that they've got eight-pack abs, like you can even see their obliques. Most of us are not there anymore. But we do care about our bodies, even if we aren't as thin or as athletic as we once were, we take care of ourselves to some degree. It's natural. It's reasonable. We comb our hair if we have it. Maybe we work out sometimes. We eat food that we like. We rest from time to time when we have a chance because we know we need it. It's, it's reasonable for a person to take care of himself or herself. Husbands know how to do this. Now, there are exceptions to this. There are people who harm themselves, but, but the exception proves the rule. Generally speaking, reasonable people take care of themselves. But when we get married, according to the Scriptures, and we will explore this in more detail next week, we become one flesh. Two people become, become one person in God's sight. Now, we're still separate. We, we don't have this sort of actual fleshly symbiotic relationship where we become sort of like Siamese twins. That's not what God's saying through Paul's pen. But he is saying in his sight, two people have now become one. And just like we know how to take care of ourselves, we should take care of our wives. The struggle, of course, is that we love ourselves so much and we forget that she has actually become one flesh with us that we can tend to not love her like that, but to treasure ourselves, to, to nourish our own flesh and to ignore her. Paul says we can't live that way because in God's sight she has become one flesh with us. We should cherish her and nourish her. Modeled after what? After Jesus' sacrifice, who set aside his own prerogatives and rights. And who had more prerogatives and rights than Jesus? He's God. According to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus didn't have to grasp after deity. He was deity. But he set it aside temporarily, his own prerogatives and rights, that he might grant her inheritance rights to bring her into union with him. In the same way, husbands... The greatest life you can lead is to lay your life down for your wife. And, and in doing so, you will find and display true masculinity. 
evangelicals have really screwed this up. Books have been written on this, that, that the way to find ourselves, guys, is to, to go in the woods somewhere and wear scratchy plaid and get an axe or maybe a hatchet because that's a little bit more mobile. And while we're out in the woods, maybe slay a deer through a perfect strike in their skull. Create a fire out of flint, certainly not matches. Cut the wood down with our hatchet. Roast said deer on a spit while juices drip down our long beards that have never been trimmed. And we hang out together and we hoot and like holler and make guttural prehistoric noises. Like, like this is masculinity. Masculinity is not living in the woods. It's not being good at sports. Jesus, as far as we know, n- never played baseball. Jesus didn't know football stats. Jesus was a carpenter, so maybe he had some sharp cutting instruments, but I doubt Jesus went out into the surrounding forests on the Mount of Olives and threw hatchets at trees to prove how tough he was. Jesus was the perfect man, though. And how did he display this? Because he gave his life for others. He laid his life down for his friends, for his bride, the church. Husbands, whenever you discover that real masculinity is laying your life down for the, for the needs of another, yielding your own rights for another, then you will know what real masculinity is. And as we do so, we display the beauty of the one flesh union of marriage. What will it cost you? It'll cost you everything. But just like the sacrifices of the Old Testament when burned, sent up a sweet aroma to God, so too will your sacrifice not only be a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God, but in your own. It won't be tasteless. It won't be ugly. It won't be something that you hate. It'll be the path of joy for you. Let me tell you a story, and then briefly after that I'll close. In my marriage, we've always, we've always had a good one. It's never been consistently hard. We've had our rough spots. There have been some hard moments along the way. We've had seasons that were harder than others. We've always gotten along well. We've always communicated pretty well. But about seven or eight years into marriage, and if you're doing the math, I was already pastoring by this point, should I? so I should have had everything figured out because you're supposed to be the holy shaman or something. Um, I was frustrated with Whitney over a couple of things, things that I didn't feel like she was doing, paying attention to me. And so whenever she would do these things, I would get really mad. I would cold shoulder her. Sometimes I would leave our bedroom at night and sleep in another bed and other mean things, things to get back at her, retributional things, things to prove a point. I remember one night in particular, I was really frustrated over something. And I came upstairs, she was... um, getting ready. We seem to have a lot of our conversations like over the bedtime routine at night, which is not the best time to have conversations. It's just kind of what we do because <laughs> the kids are finally asleep and they can't interrupt us. Um, we count now, by the way, like how many interruptions we get when we're having a serious conversation. But anyway, um, I remember sitting on the edge of the bed and, and my tendency at that point for really like seven or eight years would have been to, to lash out or to cold shoulder her. I kind of alternated to, tr- to prove a point. And I remember sitting there, uh, I think I was preaching through John at that point. 
and I was struck with this notion of grace, and I was teaching everybody to, to behold the grace of Jesus and to walk in light of it. And I sat there on the end of our bed as I watched her getting ready for bed, and I just thought to myself, you are the biggest hypocrite in Ohio because you're not doing what you're saying. You're not loving her like you should. You're being harsh. You're being mean. You are not eliciting, drawing out obedience to Jesus by the way that you're loving her. And so I remember that night, I don't remember the date, but I remember the night very distinctly. I thought, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to pursue her in gracious love, knowing full well she probably knows I'm frustrated. And our marriage changed that night, and it's never really been the same since. Again, it's always been fine and good. But it changed that night because I changed. Because Jesus changed me. I was drinking from the well of the gospel, and through that, the Spirit was changing the way I thought, the way that I felt, and then finally, my will got engaged. Through that, my wife changed. Through that, the culture of our home and our family changed. Now, I'm not perfect. You can ask my wife. You can ask my boys. I'm not perfect. I don't love perfectly. I can be mean. I can be short. I can get angry. I can be frustrated. I can be very selfish. The culture of our home, especially that night, was changed because a culture of grace began to enter in because I had to change. And so I say to you, husbands, what will it cost you? It'll cost you everything. But it's worth it. You will receive the deepest joy. Your wife will understand joy in new and profound ways. Your children will will be transformed, generationally speaking. And I do need to say that, that this has a transformative effect on the world because it looks weird. It's different. But because the echoes of the divine story of sacrificial love beat in the hearts and echo in the minds and ears of every image bearer out there, we can draw their attention to Jesus who laid his life down for the church and in so doing, we might gain an audience to speak this word of gospel, this good news to them. So husbands, such love, enabled by Jesus, enabled by Jesus, will not only transform you, but your home and maybe the world. So husbands, love your wives as a reflection of the gracious, sacrificial love of Jesus for his people, the church that we might display the beauty of the one flesh union of marriage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now take your word, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us for your glory and for our collective joy. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.